I'll never forget for the rest of my life the first time that I lay eyes on a 3D ultrasound image of Henry, my firstborn son. Before that 3D image, we had received those kind of black and white, 2D, grainy, blurry photos of him. And I was convinced up to that point that Henry was going to come out either looking like an alien or he was going to have a floating head. I wasn't sure. But when Kelsey and I laid our eyes on that 3D image of Henry, everything changed. I could see him so clearly. It was like I was looking at an accurate picture of my son. You see, a 3D ultrasound image is multiple two-dimensional images taken at various angles and then kind of pieced together to form a 3D rendering. You move from a grainy photo to a typical photo of your baby. This picture was mind-blowing. It was life-altering. It was game-changing. I was laying eyes on a real image of my son. Well, brothers and sisters, when we look at the book of Mark, it's like we're seeing a 3D ultrasound image of the kingdom of God. Each step that Jesus takes shows a clear image of the kingdom. And I want to tell y'all, this is incredibly important to understand and remember throughout the book. Jesus will perform many miracles. He will heal dozens of people, and he will even raise folks from the dead. And this work, I want to say, clearly shows his compassion. And even more than that, it shows that he's God's son who's been sent from heaven. But above all, these acts give us pictures of the kingdom of God that will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. In his book, Reading the Gospels Wisely, Jonathan Pennington says this. He says, the, bo- the gospels beautifully give us not just truths, but images of the kingdom to come. I'll say that again. The gospels, not just, they don't just give us truths, but they give us images of the kingdom to come. As the king arrives, so does his kingdom. And Mark writes this gospel primarily so that we might lay our eyes on clear images of that kingdom. Well, for what purpose, you might ask? Well, that we might enter that kingdom through repentance and faith and spread the kingdom as we become fishers of men. To grasp the book of Mark is to grasp the emphasis on the kingdom of God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, I have three points this morning stemming from the text. We're going to see a kingdom call, and that's going to be in verses 14 through 20. A kingdom conflict, we're going to see that in verses 21 through 28 and 35 through 39. And we've got to keep going with the C's, a kingdom compassion. Verses 29 through 34 and 40 through 45. So a kingdom call, kingdom conflict, and kingdom compassion. Now, before we dive into the text, we need to ask this pressing question. What is the kingdom of God? You see, theologians define the kingdom of God in many ways. Some define the kingdom of God as a new creation with Jesus at its center. Others say the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then some just define the kingdom of God simply as God's rule and reign. Now, if you're going to press me and say, which one do you agree with? I think I'd say I agree with all of those. I think they're really all saying the exact same thing. One writer put it like this. 
The kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule and reign. His loving kindness that is exercised over his people. I think that's a great definition. The kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule and reign. His loving kindness that is exercised over his people. And I'll say this, we don't have the term, the phrase, the kingdom of God in our Old Testament, but it's littered all the way through, especially in Genesis 1 through 2. The pattern of the kingdom is present. You see, God's kingdom existed perfectly with Adam and Eve as they lived under their king in the garden. They walked with God day by day, and they, and they experienced his good blessing. However, everything changed in Genesis 3. What happened? Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and the results were devastating. The kingdom perished. God's people were kicked out of his garden, and they were not experiencing his blessings anymore. It's a bleak scene in Genesis 3, but God gives humanity a glimmer of hope in Genesis 3.15 when he promises there's going to be one born of a woman who's going to crush Satan. He promises that one is going to come that's going to reverse all the effects of the fall. The kingdom that was lost in Eden will not be lost forever. From that point, our whole Old Testament gradually starts to reveal the identity of this kingdom recreator and Satan crusher until John the Baptist comes on the scene declaring, I'm the very last prophet. Make way for this man. Speaking on the kingdom of God, Greg Gilbert helpfully wrote this. He said, what an awesome thought that is. Jesus' incarnation was much more than just a kind visit from the creator. It was the launching of God's full and final counter-offensive against sin, death, and destruction that had entered the world through Adam. You see, the kingdom of God embodied in Jesus will be seen as Satan, demons, sickness, death, and destruction will be dealt with blow by blow, reversing the effects of the fall. As we saw in my last sermon, the message of John was simply this, Prepare for the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Well, John's mission had been completed. His purpose had been fulfilled. Thus, he exits in verse 14, giving way for Jesus and his kingdom to be brought in. We come to our first point, kingdom call in verses 14 through 20. Look with me at verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. To begin, we need to look at the spiritual climate at the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. The text says that Jesus made his entrance when? After John was arrested. This isn't like LeBron James's 2010 press conference in a cozy gym telling the world that he's going to take his talents to South Beach. That is, he's going to go play for the Miami Heat. No, Jesus Christ holds his press conference after John was handed over to the authorities. John both foreshadowed Jesus's message and his destiny. Suffering and persecution were inevitable, yet Jesus boldly appears despite the danger. Well, what was Jesus' press conference message? As Thomas Schreiner commented, I love this. It was a press conference filled with fresh winds of grace, mercy, and peace to Israel. 
Just think about this whole scene with me. Jesus came into Galilee. That statement alone should be shocking to us. God's son from all eternity came into Galilee, clothed from anyone seeing his glory, far away from angels worshiping him, and bound to a certain time in a certain place. Jesus Christ humbly proclaims there is good news for everyone. The kingdom of God is at hand. Once What was once lost at Eden has not been vanished completely. The king has come back with his kingdom. The one anointed has come to bring good news to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and free prisoners. He has come for his very people that have rejected God as king. It truly is fresh winds of grace, mercy, and peace. Well, Jesus Christ, the king, is first and foremost proclaiming that God's gift has arrived in his son, restoring his heavenly reign on earth. Divine blessings are present. Recreation is at hand. People in sin are about to be set free. Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand. And I want to emphasize this. The kingdom of God is not just God's rule and reign. I want to say that it's God's redemptive rule and reign. We see God's rule and reign present in his decreation through a worldwide flood in Genesis 6. But that's not what's happening in Mark 1. God's recreating. He's not destroying. Jesus has come to occupy his very kingdom with kingdom citizens. That's why the kingdom can only come through the cross. For Jesus to establish a perfect kingdom, he must perfect kingdom citizens. He can only do that through his death and resurrection. The kingdom can only come through the cross. But our entrance into the kingdom, I want you to hear this, is not one of coercion. It's not one of force or passivity. The text is crystal clear. We have an obligation and responsibility to repent and believe the good news. Jesus lays out the demands of kingdom admission. What is it? He doesn't say that it's good behavior. He doesn't say that it's church attendance. He doesn't say that it's baptism. What does he say? He says, repent and believe the good news. That's the only way that we're able to enter the kingdom is through repentance and faith. Well, if you're a visitor here at Christ Fellowship, I would love to know this one question. Do you have anybody here that would affirm your kingdom citizenship? One of the biggest blessings of church membership is that our entrance into this congregation entails an affirmation of our profession of faith. You see, the whole congregation hears the testimony of someone desiring to be a member, and they vote yes together. We believe that person is a kingdom citizen. It's like they check their passport of kingdom citizenship, making sure that they're legit. Now, I want you all to hear me. The way in which they check their passport is not looking at their life saying, there must not be a single sin in this person's life, or they're not coming into Christ fellowship. If that was the case, what would happen? Nobody would be a member. The way in which we check their kingdom citizenship is by seeing if repentance and faith are present. Are they repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus? Now, my question for you is this. Who in your life is doing that for you? 
If you're a Christian, don't you want the assurance that flows from brothers and sisters publicly affirming your faith through, through church membership? Don't you want people around you to help live out your kingdom citizenship here on earth? Friend, church membership will do those very things for you. I would encourage you to join a local healthy church. It will be such a blessing for your soul. Well, after Jesus' initial press conference, he does something very unexpected. He walks alongside the Sea of Galilee, calling four common fishermen to follow him. If you'll look with me at verse 16, we see Jesus calling Simon and Andrew to follow him. He says in verse 17, Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. And then he does the same thing to two other fishermen named James and John. In verse 20, it tells us that they both left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. I want to make three observations and one application about Jesus' calling his first kingdom citizens. Observation number one, Jesus' call is effectual. In the first century, the students must pursue a rabbi to enter a rabbinical school. The rabbi was actually dependent on the students, like a cult leader dependent on his followers. But on the shores of Galilee, we find that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are wholly dependent on the teacher pursuing them. The fishermen were not pursuing Jesus. We clearly see that in the kingdom of God, Jesus must pursue us. And I want you to notice that he calls them by name. He sees Simon and Andrew and he calls them. And then he sees James and John and what does he do? He does the exact same thing. He called them. This wasn't a general call for anybody to follow Jesus. No, this was a specific call of specific people to follow him. And I want to tell you this Christ fellowship. If you are a Christian, well, then Jesus has sought you out personally. He has called you by name and he died for you on the cross. And I want to tell you that when he called you, his word effectively worked to bring you to himself. What a glorious call that is. All right, so first observation, Jesus' call is effectual. Also, Jesus' call demands training. He doesn't say, go out and fish for men. I will see if you sink or swim. No, the text says that Jesus will make them fishers of men. Kingdom citizens are not perfect on day one. Far from it. Jesus must call his disciples and equip them for the very work they're called to do. Well, how will Jesus equip them? It's really clear from the text. He says what? Follow me. You see, truth is both caught and taught. What the disciples are going to see during Jesus' earthly ministry, they're going to see him preaching the word. They're going to see that both publicly and privately. And they're going to also see the way that Jesus lived out that very truth that he preached. But if you read the book of Mark, you will see that this instance right here is really one of the few places in which Mark speaks well of the disciples. This is one of the only instances that we see them painted in a positive light. For the most part, Jesus is rebuking them for their hardness of heart and their lack of faith. Yet these fishermen right here on this Galilean shore 
were the very pillars of the first Christian church. They were the very people that took the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Discipleship is hard. Sanctification is messy. Yet Jesus is committed to making imperfect people useful for their kingdom duty. Those that he calls, he equips. Well, our last observation, Jesus' call includes responsibility. Those that he calls, he equips. And those that he equips, he sends out. Jesus has a purpose for his people. It's not that they hunker down in their homes as they await the perfected kingdom. No, Jesus lays out the very duty of kingdom citizens in verse 17. Look with me there. He says, I'll make you fish for people. Kingdom expansion is the very work Jesus is calling his kingdom citizens to take part in. Jesus' role on this Galilean shore will be the disciples' role when Jesus ascends into heaven. They too will be calling people to repent and believe in the good news. You see, Jesus calls his followers to be others-focused. He says, I've called you so that you may call others to repent and believe that they too might become kingdom citizens. They too might experience forgiveness of sins. They too might be reconciled back to God. I'm calling, equipping, and sending you to become fishers of men. What a privilege it is to be called by Jesus. Well, it's clear from the text that the call to enter the kingdom is a call to work to advance the kingdom. The purpose of discipleship is that we might become fishers of men. Friends, this is not optional. This is at the very heart of our kingdom duty. Now, if I'm thinking about this church, the fear that I have for Christ fellowship, and I'm including myself here, is that we would be a people who stay in the equipping phase. What does that look like, you might ask? Well, it's a bunch of people whose schedules are filled with church activities. You lead community groups. You attend multiple Bible studies. You do precepts on this day, Bible study on this day, and book study on that day. And you meet with many people throughout the week. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm so thankful for all of those things. We desire that the local church be at the center of your life. And I'm confident that God is bearing fruit in all of those good activities. A disciple never ever gets out of the equipping phase. For all eternity, we will be growing in our knowledge of God. But in this congregation, we also want to see the Lord raise up a culture of evangelism. Every single one of us has a responsibility to share the gospel with those that do not know the Lord. So my question for you is this. Where does evangelism fit in your schedule? I'm asking the same question for myself. If our whole schedule is wrapped around church activities, that might crowd out the opportunity to spend time with unbelievers. Now, the application for you this morning is simple. Think through your fall schedule. How might you spend time with unbelievers? And that might mean dropping a Bible study. And hearing from your pastor, that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. 
if you go spend time with a pickleball team or you join a gym or you join a book club, that might give you good opportunity to rub shoulders with unbelievers. And that's a great thing. We want the church to be at the center of your life, but we do not want to become a holy huddle. We want to take the gospel out to the highways and byways. So brothers and sisters, let's get creative this fall. Let's work in our schedules opportunities to have evangelism opportunities. And now if you're sitting in your chair right now saying, man, I really don't feel equipped to do that. I heard there's this great evangelism training coming up from our brother Mark Simon. There's the plug right there. Y'all go to that. He can really help you just grow in both competency and boldness to share the gospel. That's coming up in a few weeks. I'm praying that we would grow in this area. Well, next, we'll see great evidence of the kingdom in breaking in, but it's not without conflict from the dominion of Satan. To our second point, kingdom conflict. Look with me at verse 21. They went into Capernaum, And right away, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. According to Matthew, and we even get a hint of it in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus moves his residence from Nazareth to Capernaum. And I think the reason he does that is just to stay with Peter. Capernaum was a small town located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Most of the residents of this town were Jews, which is why we have a synagogue present. Now, the synagogue was very different from the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was where um, sacrifices were offered by the priest. But the synagogues were more of a local gathering where the Torah and Jewish traditions were expounded. Children were educated, archives restored, and many, many other things. It was the center of public life for the Jewish people. And the Sabbath, like our Sundays, was their main gathering. The synagogues, they also did not have paid teachers who were paid to teach the Torah each and every Sabbath. No, that actually fell to the laity and mostly to the scribes. If you don't know who scribes were, they were people that really had their PhD in the Torah. They, had their, they were experts in the Old Testament. And please hear me, kind of everyone knew that they were experts. I read that they shared the best seats in the house in the synagogue. And kind of like judges today, when they would walk into a room, everyone would stand up. But as we will see throughout Mark's gospel, their proficiency in the Old Testament will not be a sign of true piety. There's a clear difference. And not just a difference that we notice, but it's a difference that the people noticed during that day between the scribes and this Jewish man that had a couple of fishermen following him. What was the main difference, you might ask? Well, Jesus taught about the Father, but the scribes taught about tradition. Jesus taught about entrance into the kingdom, and the scribes kept people out of the kingdom. Jesus spoke about God's glory And the scribes spoke about their own glory. If you look at verse 27, the people called Jesus' teaching what? They called it a new teaching. 
You see, they knew something was different. Why? Because Jesus was looking at the people saying he's the very fulfillment of God's promises spoken by the prophets. A new period of history had dawned. The day of the Lord had arrived. Jesus' teaching came with authority and they sensed it. It's the difference between the words of God and the words of man. True religion and traditionalism. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. Jesus' teaching came straight from the Father and the people could sense a difference. We should note that some people in the synagogue, they became very uncomfortable with the teaching on repentance. Look with me at verse 23. I think this is so interesting. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see, I must assume that this man with the unclean spirit sat comfortably in the synagogue every Sabbath before Jesus' arrival. Why do I say that? I think we get that from Matthew 23, verses 13 through 14. Jesus, denouncing the scribes, said this. He said, Woe to you, scribes, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in either. According to Matthew 23, there was zero conflict with this unclean spirit prior to Jesus' appearance. The scribes, in some senses, were the demons' most useful associates. But conflict arose when Jesus' teaching flung open the doors of the kingdom of heaven, proclaiming that entrance is possible through repentance and faith in him. If I could pause quickly, I'd love to give a quick word to those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we want to be totally upfront with you. If you are uncomfortable at this moment, that might be an affirmation that we are preaching the Christ-centered gospel. Now, please hear me. We do everything we can to ensure you that you enjoy your time with us. That's precisely why we switched from Keurig coffee to bougie coffee. We did that for you. We really do love you. But at the same time, we want each and every Sunday for you to feel the uncomfortableness of the message of salvation. Why do I say that? Because you are a sinner before a holy God. And if you died at this moment, it would not go well for you. And friends, we don't want you to be surprised by that. I'll tell you a quick story. This week, Kelsey and I came home and our garbage cans were completely gone. And so we called the waste company and we're like, what's going on? And they go, well, you haven't paid in 10 months. And I sat there thinking, what are you talking about? We set up auto pay. And they're like, oh, well, that messed up. You haven't paid in 10 months. And I was like, well, you haven't notified us. You didn't tell us anything. We were assuming that we were paying for our waste and we didn't. And now our garage is filled with trash. And that trash is filled with dirty diapers. And so it's just a mess. But the point that I want to share is they did not notify us. And we were caught off guard. We don't want you to be caught off guard. We want you to know that if you go before a holy God at this moment, well, you will suffer punishment for all eternity. 
But that moment is not this moment. You have time to turn. The good news of the gospel is that we are sinners before a holy God, but Jesus came to reconcile us back to God, to bring in the kingdom that we might become kingdom citizens. If you repent and believe in Jesus who died for you on the cross, well, then you will become kingdom citizens. You will not be caught off guard on that day, and you will be with God for all eternity. We're praying that you would repent and believe in the resurrected Christ. Well, if you look back at the text, conflict ensued when Jesus opened the door to the kingdom of God. It's like we have a welterweight boxing match on our hands. Standing in one corner is Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. And the other corner is the dominion of Satan, the power structure of the world. Well... (laughs) The fight ends up similar to a head-to-head matchup between Floyd Mayweather and me. It does not go well for the demon. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus, or Mark explains the outcome of the conflict. Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsion, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. It was a total KO, a knockout punch from Jesus. The demon did not stand a chance. Well, I want, to, I want us to examine one more important truth before moving on to our last point. How was Jesus strengthened for the conflict? We know that he was met with conflict. We see that throughout the Gospels. Really, page by page, Jesus is met with conflict. But my question is, how was he strengthened for that very conflict? I think we see the answer in verse 36. Look with me there. We're given a window into Jesus' private life. The text says that very early in the morning, that's between the hours of 3 and 6, when it was still dark, Jesus went out to pray. You see, Jesus had been healing people up to that point and casting demons out all night. He had no rest. But I love how Jesus doesn't kind of turn in on himself, kind of shrink back and say, you know what, I deserve a little Netflix and chill. He doesn't say that at all. What does he say? No, he finds a desolate place to pray and spend time with the Father. He shows in this moment right here where his spiritual strength comes from. One commentary helpfully said this. He said, Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and purpose with the Father. I love that. Jesus prayed that his ministry would both align with the Father and bear fruit for the kingdom. Prayer was a necessity for advancing the kingdom for Jesus. Well, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper gives this amazing illustration. Um, It's an illustration that's kind of lengthy, but I think it's worth sharing because it shows us exactly what Jesus was doing in that desolate place. So bear with me. I'm going to read this illustration on prayer. It's so good. He said this, Probably the number one reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It was through the field commander, Jesus, called in his troops. He gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit. 
he handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will be always as close to you as your transmitters to give tactical advice and to send air cover when needed. I love this. This understanding of prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie to help complete our mission is exactly what we see from Jesus in this section. The devil was not going to lay down. He was not going to roll over. No, Jesus was constantly met with conflict as he called people out of darkness into his kingdom. But to get strength, he goes to the Father. And I want us to look at his actions right after he finishes praying. Look at verses 38 and 39. Jesus said when his disciples came to him, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. And then we see what he does in verse 39. He follows through his word. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus understood that life is war. And he met the conflict head on after appealing to his father for strength amid the battle. Well, Christ Fellowship, does your prayer life look more like a wartime walkie-talkie or a domestic intercom? Henry got his first walkie-talkies for his birthday this past week, and we were in different rooms on Wednesday using them, acting like there was a fire in the living room. I would call him and I'd say, Henry, fire in the living room, fire in the living room. And then he would, on his walkie-talkie, he like, it took him like 30 minutes to figure out that you have to press the button to talk into it. Um, but he figured that out. And so finally, when he pressed the button, he said, Dada, the fire department is on the way. Now, there was not much urgency in our voices as we talk with one another. Why? Because we knew the fire was make-believe. But friends, the fires that will occupy hell for all eternity are a, not a figment of our imaginations. I think we can sometimes forget that unbelievers who die will spend all eternity away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. We'll look no further to the content of your prayers for evidence of this. Friends, the application for us is straightforward. Our understanding of our mission fuels our prayers. I'll say that again. An understanding of our mission fuels our prayers. If you understand your mission in life to make lots of money and kind of just ride off into the sunset, well, then your prayer life will look, like, will look more like a domestic intercom. However, suppose you understand yourself to be a fisher of men, a citizen advancing the kingdom of God, doing battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. In that case, you will utilize your wartime walkie-talkie at all hours of the day. Friend, how do you see your mission? Look no further for your prayer for look no further to your prayers for evidence. If Jesus needed time with the Father before going into spiritual battle, 
how much more do we need to spend time with the Father before we go into each new day engaging in spiritual warfare? We need to be restrengthened. So I pray that we go to the Father. Well, we've seen the call and conflict of the kingdom. Now we'll finish our time looking at the compassion of the kingdom. To our last point, kingdom compassion. Look with me at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve him. I want to point out a couple things concerning Jesus' compassion for Simon's mother-in-law. The first point, Jesus has compassion for everyone. I'll say that again. Jesus has compassion for everyone. Simon's mother-in-law was just a common Jew lying in her bed ill. We have already heard of Jesus' mission in verse 38. It's not to heal the sick primarily, but to what? But to go preach the gospel. But we see right here his compassion for all people. And if you look at verse 32, we see it even more. After the Sabbath was over, they brought him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. Jesus did not discriminate. He healed everyone that came to him. Jesus' compassion is on everyone because his image indelibly marks everyone. Well, finally, Jesus has compassion for all needs. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a fever Yet the text says that they told Jesus about her at once. Now, they didn't say to themselves, you know, so many other people are suffering so much worse. Maybe we just let Jesus tend to those people. You see, I think sometimes we can have this like falsely pious attitude that says, I'm not going to ask for prayer for this small sickness, or I'm not going to ask for prayer for this small need. God and his church have much bigger issues to solve. Well, friends, God's compassion is infinite. That's God's infinitude. It will never run out. You will never, ever, ever exhaust any of his attributes. So go to him. Jesus has compassion for all of your needs. And also look at the disciples. They immediately brought Simon's mother-in-law to Jesus. And that's what we want to do as a church. We want to hear from you so that we can bring your needs to Jesus. Let us do that for you, no matter what the need is. Well, finally, at the end of chapter one, we see the king of the kingdom associating himself and having compassion for someone in the lowest possible position in society. Mark writes in verse 40, look with me there. Then a man with leprosy came to him and said, and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Man, I love this account. And to end our time together, I just want to notice one thing. I want us to notice the movement of the leper and Jesus. I just want us to notice how they move throughout the account. I was first notified by this in a commentary, and it literally changed the way that I saw this passage. 
So to start, notice that the man with leprosy, where did he come? Well, he came to Jesus. And this right here is a scandalous action. Leprosy was thought to be divine punishment during that period. They were considered to be the most unclean people of the day. They had to live outside the camp in leper colonies, lest their disease spread to others. They would have to call out unclean, unclean, unclean if anybody passed them. And they would have to stand 50 paces from anyone they encountered. It was the absolute worst state to be in. We have first century documents saying that people called them the living dead. It's kind of like the show. Um, the, it's kind of like a, a similar picture would be zombies in the walking dead. Although they're living, it's like they're dead to society. But what happens in this text? Well, the man risks everything. He really goes against all known laws to come right before Jesus, fall on his knees and cry out, you can make me clean. Do it. Well, let's continue to track the movements. Now the man has moved from where? From outside the city, and he has come face to face with Jesus in the middle of the city. And the text says that Jesus is moved with compassion. We have some manuscripts that say indignation, and I'm not actually sure what it is. It's either compassion or indignation. I kind of lean towards compassion. Jesus had compassion for the state of this miserable man, but he could have shown righteous anger because of the effects of the fall. Well, what does Jesus do in light of this leper's request? He reaches out his hand and touches him. Friends, this is no less scandalous. Anyone that the leper touched or anyone that touched the leopard would have been immediately become unclean. But Jesus doesn't. It's actually the exact opposite. The leper becomes clean. How is that possible? Because Jesus has authority over diseases. I love this account. Is this not such a wonderful picture of salvation? Jesus comes to us, touching the ugliness and the dirtiness of our sin, bringing us forgiveness. We who were once unclean become clean by Jesus' touch. But friends, let's just ask this final question. How do we become clean? How do we as sinners become clean? I think this text gives us a clue. After this man has been healed, Jesus orders him to say nothing about this, but show himself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for his cleansing. You see, this man can miraculously and finally function in the city. He's able to move throughout the city. He's able to go to the temple, which shows what? which shows that he's completely healed, that Jesus cleansed him completely. What was once yesterday thought of as the impossible now is a real reality. Now, Jesus tells this man not to say anything, but this man says, no, I'm going to tell everyone. He disobeys Jesus. And verse 45 tells us that he went out and began to proclaim it widely and spread the news, resulting in Jesus no longer entering a town openly but he was out in deserted places. Do you see the movement in this text? Look with me at verse 40. Jesus started in the city. Then he was met face to face with an unclean man from outside the camp, only to heal him of his disease. And finally, at the end of the camp, where's the leper? 
The leper's inside the city. Where's Jesus? Jesus is outside the city. Friends, I think this is exactly what we're going to see at the end of Jesus's ministry. As he carries that wooden cross outside the camp of Golgotha so that we unclean sinners might come inside the camp to become kingdom citizens of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God's people can only become clean if Jesus goes outside the camp taking our punishment and our sin upon him. Genesis or um, Hebrews 13, 12 tells us this exact truth. The writer of Hebrews said, therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. Why did he suffer outside the city gate? So that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Jesus shows us a picture of the kingdom of God in these passages. The kingdom will consist of no pain, no disease, no conflict, and no evil. Nevertheless, for us to be counted as kingdom citizens, Jesus must go outside the camp to suffer. What a glorious Savior that we have.